The Way Out Podcast, episode 24. If I had a dime for every time before I found recovery of, of that thought, if you only knew what it feels like to be me, right. if you only knew how deeply I feel these emotions, you know? Exactly. It, uh, but it, it turned out not to be not to be true. It was really kind of a, a made-up idea in my head that people did know. I just wanted to separate and keep myself different, right? which allowed my sickness to progress. As I got progressively older, the anger began to develop more and more. I do remember feeling often very emotional, very lonely, um, disconnected. And my mom came in and checked on me and there were no hugs and no smiles and no I love yous. I was scolded and told to pick my toys up. Mm -hmm. And that is the very first memory, conscious memory that I have. And from that, I took away from that, I'm not loved. Mm -hmm. So at two years of age, I already have this idea that I'm not loved. Now I'm experiencing it, but the things that, the way that I wanted it to be. And you know, I came to learn about selfishness later on through the program, but looking back in retrospect, I can see that even as a child, I was quite selfish. Eventually my friend Johnny and I had left the park and uh, we wound up at the construction site across the street from our, from our place. And we had been there many, many times. And we were jumping and having a lot of fun jumping down the hill as, as they're doing this, but this particular time, something different happened. While we were there, as he jumped past me, the hillside collapsed and at three years of age, I watched my best friend die in front of me. Wow. And when we left there, at some point, the lesson I took from that was that if I love you, you will go away. Two biggest memories from my very early childhood are that I'm not loved and if I love you, you will go away. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of the way out sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions the way out does not speak on behalf of nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization our purpose is to share with you one episode at a time what it was like what happened and what it's like now the way out is sponsored by transitions daily would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the new official blog of The Way Outcast at www.wayoutcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at The Way Out Podcast. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on Stitcher and iTunes. And following us on Twitter. And don't forget to tell your friends about The Way Out Podcast. The Way Out Podcast is on now. I'm your host, Charlie L. This week, we'll be talking with Christopher B. With more than a few 24 hours of sobriety and recovery behind his belt, Christopher shares some real experience, strength, and hope, and tells us about the difference between the fellowship and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
Chris, welcome to the Way Out Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to come into the lavish Way Out Cast Studios to uh, share some experience, strength, and hope uh, on this fine Minnesota winter day. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me to come on up. You bet. So we actually met through a uh, Facebook group over in Sirius. Which, we did. Uh, uh, is a group that we both belong to, and a rapidly growing group, actually, um, that has uh, uh, over, what, 4,000 members? It, it does. I looked at it yesterday, and I was actually quite surprised that there was over 4,000 members of the group. And started here uh, locally, kind of here in... Uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul area, and uh, is quickly spanning out to... Yeah, Keith uh, started the group and talked to me when he was starting it a little bit about some different things he wanted to accomplish with the group, and he went ahead and set it up and gave me an invite, and it seems that the group is going quite rapidly, and there's a lot of people that share share information in there, and you know, different opinions go around. We share some experience, strength, and hope that goes on there, so it, it seems to be a pretty good growing group, and uh, there, I, I've noticed there are some people from across the pond over in uh, Europe that were there, as well as several states here within the U.S. that are represented as well, so it's a nice, nice thing. And... You know, it's funny. I just got done with an interview with somebody across the pond in Wales, and uh, um, the more we, the more I connect with people, the more I interview people, the more I am able to uh, hear people's stories. The more commonality I find in, you know, the, the stories of those who have have recovered, and that we're certainly more alike than we are different when it comes to the, uh, um, not only just the 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 recovery journey but just kind of the human experience i would agree there's a lot more similarities than most people probably anticipate there are particularly if they're new they're focused so so often on the differences that the message sometimes can get lost because we're focused you know well they had this experience where they were married and i wasn't or they've got children and i wasn't but one of the things that was very good for me is very early um, an old guy was talking to me in the meetings, and he said, kid, don't listen to the differences. Listen to the similarities. That's a huge piece. And when I did that, <clears throat> even though my, you know, my experiences, my physical experiences may have been different or vastly different, the common emotionality that went along with, you know, that degradation, that, that feeling of uselessness and demoralization and self-pity, I could relate to all of that. And I think that that's really one of the very first hooks that got me into this is when I looked into their eyes, I knew that they understood me. I knew they knew I, what I was talking about. When I said, this is what's happening, they understood that. And at that point, we feel less alone and we feel less isolated and less unique. Sure. Which is uh, an important part for me in terms of recovery. If I live, I live so long, feeling like I was, you know, uh, we use a term, I suppose, t- terminally unique. And um, but more of that, you know, if you only knew what it was like to be me, if you only knew how I feel inside and the things that I've had to go through, then you would drink too. If I had a dime for every time before I found recovery of, of that thought, if you only knew what it feels like to be me, right. if you only knew how deeply I feel these emotions, you know? Exactly. It, uh, but it, it turned out not to be not to be true. It was really kind of a, a made-up idea in my head that people did know. I just wanted to separate and keep myself different. 
right. which allowed my sickness to progress. Yeah, and be able to be different and isolated. And then when I can, when I when I isolate, that's uh, a perfect uh, opportunity for the uh, the addiction and the alcoholism to flourish in that isolation. So tell me a little bit in the way out cast audience, a little bit about uh, your story. Give us the, uh, the highlight reel of, you know, um, what uh, life was like before recovery and before really uh, getting to a place where um, you uh, really uh, felt like you've, uh, you were able to recover from uh, uh, alcoholism. Well, I grew up like a lot of us. I grew up in a home that was an alcoholic home. Uh, there was a lot of abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, emotional, verbal that went on in the home. And from a very young age, I always felt isolated and different. And, you know, as, as growing up in that environment, I think we seek solace in a lot of things. Uh, the home I grew up in, being an alcoholic home, it was very acceptable, you know, in the, in the early 1970s when... I was with my parents at different points. My dad's from a large family of seven brothers and sisters. So when they would get together, you know, they'd sit at the table and play cards or talk and, and drink, plus their spouses or girlfriends, it made for a rather large table. And I found that I could go in and somebody was always drinking beer. And I, you know, I, I cannot remember the first time I tasted beer, but I, I'd known from the moment that that thing became known to me, I loved the taste. And so I'd walk into the room and I, I would find that you could ask somebody, can I try that? And some would say no, but usually a table of 14, 15 people, somebody eventually said yes. And what I discovered was that as I took this sip of beer and, you know, being very small, four or five years old, they would take it back very quickly. And so I discovered that if they said yes, if I took a step back from the table, I could lean my head back and I could drink faster before they were able to reach up and take it away. And really, that's kind of where, you know, this whole idea started. So um, so very early on, you're already developing a behavior, a pattern of behavior that says, I need as much of this as possible. Obviously, it wasn't a, a conscious thing. Right. I just realized I liked the taste. And, you know, when you would take a sip of it, you know, just this tiny little sip wasn't enough. Right. It it it, uh, it tasted good, and I I oh. wanted more. I can identify with that. <laughs> I can identify with it tasting really good and wanting more. Yes. Um, so okay. Uh, so what happens? You you're, you get uh, this very sort of uh, very young experience and exposure to alcohol. Alcohol is prevalent in your home. Uh, there's 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 abuse uh, are, are you does the environment uh, um, are you angry are you an angry child is there anger there uh, I don't know on my end that there was a lot of anger early I think as I got progressively older the anger began to develop more and more I do remember feeling often very emotional very lonely um, disconnected. Uh, you know, I have some very vivid memories from the time I was two years of age. And, you know, the very first vivid recollection I can recall, I was about two years of age. We we're living here in St. Paul in a little apartment and I was watching TV. And 
I can't tell you to this day whether it was a commercial or an actual TV program, but there was this little boy and he was in his bedroom and he had this beautiful ornate toy box and he lifted the lid on it and he pulled all of his toys out of it and he was sitting in the toy box. And his mom came in and it was a very precious moments kind of scene and she smiled and picked him up and hugged him and loved him. And I remember sitting in the living room thinking, I want that. Mm -hmm. And I got up from the living room and I walked into my bedroom. Now, when I get into my bedroom, I'm already irritable, restless, and pissed off because I don't have a beautiful toy box. I have a cardboard box with just a few toys in it. Mm -hmm. So I pull my toys out. I sit in my cardboard box. And if anyone's had toddlers, they know that, you know, if they're not making noise for a few minutes, you got to go check on them. That's right. And my mom came in and checked on me. And there were no hugs and no smiles and no I love yous. I was scolded and told to pick my toys up. Mm -hmm. And that is the very first memory, conscious memory that I have. And from that, I took away from that, I'm not loved. Mm -hmm. So at two years of age, I already have this idea that I'm not loved. Now I'm experiencing it, but the things that, the way that I wanted it to be. And, you know, I came to learn about selfishness later on through the program. But looking back in retrospect, I can see that even as a child, I was quite selfish. I wanted things my way and adults weren't going to give it to me. And uh, the next vivid memory I have is about when I was three, we had moved around the corner. We're living in a, a duplex and they were doing construction across the street, putting in an, an interchange on Highway 280 and 94 for those familiar with the area. And my mom had gone off shopping and she left us with a babysitter she had many times. And there was this park behind our house and we'd gone to play in the park. And eventually my friend Johnny and I had left the park. And uh, we wound up at the construction site across the street from our, from our place. And we had been there many, many times. And we were jumping and having a lot of fun jumping down the hill as, as they're doing this. But this particular time, something different happened. While we were there, as he jumped past me, the hillside collapsed. And at three years of age, I watched my best friend die in front of me. Wow. And when we left there, at some point, the lesson I took from that was that if I love you, you will go away. So my two biggest memories from my very early childhood are that I'm not loved, and if I love you, you will go away. Mm -hmm. And in that, you know, I, I began to really kind of pull away. I think I, was, I think I was a happy child early, but I always felt like an old soul. I always watched a lot and looked at people and what they were doing and felt very deeply about different things. So I, I began to pull away from people and kind of stayed to myself a lot. Um, we ended up moving out to New Jersey. And when we lived out there, this is my first recollection of actually tasting alcohol. We were sitting, we had this little two bedroom home and it was very small and we were sitting in the kitchen and my dad had opened the refrigerator. And when he opened the refrigerator, there on this door, I saw this tiny little bottle you know, pint size bottle roughly. And um, I looked at it and I asked him what that was because I'd never seen anything like that. And he told me it was special adult water. So I asked him if I could try it. And he said, sure. And he uh, pulled it out and he unscrewed the cap and he poured it. And uh, I believe it was probably vodka or gin. It was clear. And I tasted it and, you know, oh, it was nasty and it burned <laughs> and it, it tasted horrible. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> But I, I remember very clearly, it was probably only about eight feet from the kitchen to the living room doorway. And I walked out to the door to go watch TV. And when I hit that doorway, 
that magic happened. What was nasty and burning and awful and horrible all of a sudden began to feel warm and this glow from the bottom of my stomach rose up my back and into my head. And in that moment, something was different. And I remember asking him, can I try that again? And he said, no. But from that moment to the moment that I stopped drinking on March 31st of 1990, that is the feeling that I chased, even though I didn't know that's what I was chasing. I so can identify with that. In my first time drinking, I felt the same way. Uh, and um, <laughs> this was when Zemo was popular in the 90s. And you're laughing because uh, I don't even think they make it anymore. I had quit drinking by the time <laughs> Zemo came out. I, I missed out on so much, actually. You really didn't. You, you really <laughs> didn't. Sprite should not be a, a, an alcoholic beverage. Nonetheless, uh, you know, it's a party and parents are gone. And uh, over at a friend's house, open bar. Parents got a bar downstairs and it's just stocked. And uh, I polish off a case of Zimas and immediately start drinking, you know, whiskey, uh, shot after shot after shot. And I, the feeling that I got from the alcohol uh, and it doing for me what I could not do for myself, it was, it, you said magic. And that's exactly how it felt. Nothing in my life had been able to do this for me before. And that was, uh, I, I, all I wanted to do was feel like that again. I remember being young, I used to watch, one of the cartoons I used to watch was Underdog. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, Underdog's alter ego was Shoeshine Boy. And if, you've, if you're familiar with, with the cartoon, as you would watch it, Shoeshine Boy was really shy, very meek, very quiet, um, introspective, and seemed like he just had the weight of the world on his shoulders constantly depressed and whenever something would happen you know he had this little ring on he would open the ring and there would be this super energy pill it was called on the cartoon i wonder why and you know he would take he would take this pill and all of a sudden he would turn into underdog and the world was afraid of him and he helped people and he was great and that is what drugs and alcohol did for me Mm -hmm. they turned me into underdog from shoeshine boy right out of that kind of just that closed-in feeling where everything was claustrophobic and felt like the whole world was, uh, was collapsing in on me. And I was able to then kind of open up and become this gregarious person that I knew lived inside of me, but I had no idea how to access him unless I had this doorway, and I found that doorway, you know, through drugs and alcohol. Uh, was there, uh, so you're, you've got this experience, you're young, you've got that uh, incredible experience. At what point are you able to, you know, engage on that and drink on a, on, a, on a more regular basis? Because, you know, dad pulls that away and says no, right? Sure. Well, you know, through, through my childhood, there were moments, I remember we would go over to my uncle's house or something and the men would sit at one table and the women would talk out into the kitchen and once in a while I got to be part of the men's table. And, you know, they used to take a little tomato juice glass, which sound about six ounces or so, they'd fill it about half full and they'd say, you know, you can be a man today. And they'd, they'd give me, you know, a couple ounces of beer and I'd sit there and I'd, I'd drink it along with them. And um, I, I was never one of those often or daily drinkers. I, I, had, an, I had experiences in my life my paternal grandfather, so my dad's dad, was a chronic alcoholic. 
drank a minimum of a fifth of Kessler's whiskey every day from the time he got home from World War II until the day that he died, except for the times he was locked up in the hospital or the nut ward. Sure. So I knew what that looked like, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to be that. And I had an experience very early. Uh, I used to have this voice that would talk to me in the back of my head. It sounds like my voice, but it would talk to me, and I had no idea where these thoughts were coming from. And I was sitting in, in fifth grade, and we were sitting in health class, and they were talking, you know, about drugs and alcohol. And back then in the 70s, it was really kind of scary. You don't do this, and, you know, you'll wind up in some mental institution with your brain fried. And right. it was really kind of the information they gave you. And so when you tried it, and that didn't happen, right, did you feel like, ha, this isn't true? Like, this isn't – what do you – this is amazing. You told me this is horrible. You said this was the worst thing ever. You said all these bad things were going to happen. And I tried it, and you're wrong because it's amazing. I don't know that that was necessarily <laughs> my, my experience, but I knew that some of the things that they were saying weren't true. But as I was sitting there in class, our teacher was talking about some things, and he said, alcoholism is an inherited disease. And when he said that, that voice in the back of my head that sometimes talks at me said, that's me. So from the time I was in fifth grade, so I'm what, 10, maybe 11 years old, I knew instinctively without anybody ever saying anything that it was absolutely true that I was an alcoholic. And so my whole career was about trying to control and enjoy my whole career, my, you know, that aspect of my life so that I wasn't like my grandfather. I wasn't like my dad when he would drink and he would get abusive and be those parts. So I never really was one of those that found it drinking often because there, I always had just that voice in the back of me that was telling me, slow down, you're going to kill yourself. It's amazing you say that because I very much have a similar experience, although I did not have an alcoholic father uh, or an alcoholic mother. All of my uncles, all of them, uh, had problems with alcohol, and some of them are still active, uh, and some of them have um, found recovery. But nonetheless, very early on, because of the the first time I drank, I drank so much that my heart stopped and I stopped breathing. Um, and I had alcohol poisoning, um, and had to go to treatment because I scared the living hell out of my parents. Um, and you know, over coffee, I told you the story of treatment and, uh, uh, you know, uh, trying to be the treatment ninja and right. the head, tra- the head treatment counselor usur- usurping the circle and, um, you know, laying it down on the line for me and not, and she just didn't buy my BS. You know, you're lying to yourself, you're lying to this group and you're going to die. Right. Um, And so I had a similar experience where it was like I knew that in the back of my head that, yeah, I I, I'm I I have this in me. This is in me. So now I have to manage it. Now I have to control it. Now I have to be aware that if I drink every day, that's a problem. If I so it's this it was this constant battle to try to still have this thing in my life because I needed it and I liked it and I enjoyed it. And it did something for me that was really beneficial for me. But I was always trying to contain it and manage it and control it and ultimately failed. Yeah, I, you know, my experiences are very similar to that, that I always would have to do that. One of the things that happened to me really early was I, I've taken medication for asthma and allergies all my life. So I've been taking pills all the time. 
And one of the things I was very aware of, um, I loved science as a kid, and they used to, and so, you know, they would talk about, in this health class, they talked about a thing called a synergistic effect, which is where two medications, you know, oppose each other and some strange things can happen. So I was always really afraid of, of this demon that was inside. And I had an experience very early when, you know, the first time I really kind of got drunk, I had this reaction with the medication I was taking, and I shook for three days. And so I was always very kind of cautious about doing the things that I, you know, that I would do along with this idea of controlling and enjoying what I, you know. So it never, it didn't really get to the point of wanting it often, probably until I was 19-ish, roughly. I had, uh, you know, as we were talking yesterday, I shared an experience with you that I was living at that time. I had moved out to California my senior year of high school. And was living in the beach communities down in Huntington Beach, Orange County area. And uh, things weren't going well. I hated school. I hated college. I was kind of lost. And my dad had given me some options to uh, join the military, which I wa- I've, I've always wanted to do. God bless the people who can do that. But because I was medically 4F, I was not qualified. He gave me an option to go to Phoenix, Arizona and get involved in construction. I hate the heat, so I wasn't going to Phoenix where it's 100 degrees plus. And he gave me an opportunity to move out to New York to get involved in the trucking industry like he was to work in an office. So when I moved out to New York, uh, I think that's really kind of where my drinking career took off. And I met a man out there whose name was Mike, and he became my alcoholic sponsor. Mm -hmm. You know, the guy who really taught me how to drink and use and introduced me to some some different things and be functional right right Right. absolutely and i was around a ton of functioning alcoholics Mm -hmm. but the problem was i was just an average kid who was just starting his life these people were already established in their life several years older than i was and financially were able to do so and maintain that lifestyle even when they got in trouble See, I didn't have that. So I was getting in trouble. I couldn't pay my bills. I was, you know, constantly trying to rob Peter to pay Paul. So my, my problems, obviously, with alcoholism started very early and almost right away for me. And for me, you know, living in, in Buffalo, New York at the time, it's a very blue-collar town, lovely place up on, on Lake Erie. And it was rated as having some of those bars per capita in the nation. Sure. Outside of Wisconsin, right? Uh, probably even a little <laughs> more than that, I think, maybe. I love Wisconsin. I just, I love you. But, uh, you know, and living out there, it's wonderful if you're a practicing alcoholic. The bars open at 8 a.m. every morning, and they don't close until 4 a.m. So they're only closed four hours a day. Which is just enough time to pass out. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, that was my experience as I got in into this. And people out there wouldn't go out like they do here in, in the Midwest. People didn't go out at 6 or 7 o'clock to start the drinking so that they were done by 10 o'clock. People there didn't start until 10 o'clock. Sure. And, you know, so you'd start drinking and you'd stay out till 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And you'd go home and, you know, you could discover a little white powder that make you feel like you're going 150 miles an hour with your hair on fire. And you'd go home and you'd take that and you could jump in bed, sleep real quick, get up real quick, go to work, go to work, go to work, you know, and you'd be just fine. Yep. Sure. And so that was kind of the experience that that came along to me. And I discovered, you know, that... I loved cocaine. I didn't discover it. I mean, obviously, it was around before I ever had that, and I knew about it. But, you know, in my personality, 
it nearly killed me. I have a very short career with it, but I found that from the moment that I tried that, I wanted it every day, and I sat and I thought about it constantly. It's funny you mentioned that. You know, I try. I've done nearly every drug outside of cocaine because I remember my younger brother. I must have been like seventeen, and he had tried cocaine that day, and he came back, and he didn't care really ever what I did, live and let live, like dude. Sure. Right, but he came home and he grabbed me, you know, by the shoulders and looked me straight in the eyes and said, please, never, ever, ever, whatever you do, do not ever try cocaine. And I sort of taken aback and I said, why? He said, because it makes you feel like God. It makes you feel like you've never ever ever felt before and it lasts for a super short time all you want to do is feel that way again yep and he just knew me well enough right like if i did it that i might never stop and it would kill me and he scared me i mean just scared the living hell out of me so i uh, uh, for as long as i uh, drank and used i avoided cocaine like the plague well, you know, it, it, the idea, and you're right, it, it, it makes you feel that way. But for me, every 20 minutes, if I had it around, I had to go do more because the feeling was wearing off. Correct. So I really kind of stuck with alcohol because the more you drank, the more you felt. Right. And it didn't wear off quickly. So, you know, though I've tried many things, I primarily identify as an alcoholic because that was my first love. That was my last love. Right. And it was the thing I knew that worked the best. Besides, it was cheap and available and very easy to get. The accessibility factor was definitely an appeal for me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> definitely. You know, so I had these experiences and, um, you know, I was doing quite well out there. By the time I was roughly 20 years of age, 21, I became partners in, in my own transportation company, a little brokerage out there. And... You know, we started doing well. It was quite successful. But the man, Mike, who was also my business partner, who I'd mentioned was, you know, my alcoholic sponsor, um, we were just out of control. I remember making those lines. You know, we used to have a little fridge in the office and we would keep beer there. And we always kept a, a at least a half gallon bottle of VO liquor on top of it. Mm -hmm. And it began with that, you know, Nobody will touch it until four o'clock on Friday. And the line in the sand. The line, the line in the sand. That, that, that disappearing line in the <laughs> sand. Right. And then eventually it was, well, you know, it's three o'clock on Thursday and we're going to go out to dinner with some customers. We'll have a few in the office. And then pretty soon it became kind of, you know, a regular thing. Right. And um, my life just kept going and downhill at 100 miles an hour, and it didn't seem I could stop. And it, I would look around, and I would see people acting in this normal way that society would tell you you're supposed to act. And one, it wasn't appealing. But two, strangely, somewhere deep down inside, in you know the bottom of my gut, I knew that I was out of control. And I wanted that, that normal life more than anything. To be able to watch them smile with their families and go home and have dinner and talk about how 
they were going to have this wonderful Christmas and go to midnight mass. And I never did those things. And while I was in it, I would tell myself, that's not appealing. That's stupid. Right. But deep down inside, I wanted that normalcy so bad. And it didn't seem anything I could do could stop the landslide that I was on. It feels very similar in my story that I always felt like there was this life that I could live, that there was this person inside of me that existed that I couldn't quite be. And the further I went into my disease and my alcoholism and my addiction, the farther away I felt like I was from that person, I thought deep, deep, deep down inside that I could actually be. Sure. And that that gap between who I was and who I wanted to be and the way my life was and the way I, I wanted my life to be was so big toward the end that I honestly thought that hey, there's no way. It's I it is done now. I have I have missed my opportunity in this life to be that person. It's gone. It it felt so inaccessible. Sure. I, I kinda liken it to a never ending forest. You know, the moment that you open up that door and start walking into this forest, you think eventually you'll get out of it. You know, that hey, if I just keep walking, I'll get through this, you know, and it's filled with darkness and with pain and misery. And the more you walk in it, the more dark and miserable it becomes till you get to a point where there's no way out. You can't even go, you can't even imagine going back to that doorway and walking out to that part of normal life. And you just resign yourself, or at least I did, to the idea, I'm going to be miserable all of my life. And eventually I'm going to die. Correct. And the sooner I can die, the better off it will be for me and for everyone around me because I have so much going on that this darkness is beginning to envelop the people around me. Right. It brings them pain. It brings them misery. And the thing was, I always thought, you know, if you knew who I was, you would know why I act the way that I act right. and I do the things that I do because I feel so deeply and I know I'm going to hurt you. Right. I have to anesthetize this pain somehow, right. some way, right. even if, you know, so I was a runner too. I, yep. you know, emotionally I would run from everything. Yep. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and I found this house and it worked until it didn't work. So you talk about, uh, the traumatic experience when you were three, the experience with your mom when you were two and this idea that I can't love and I can't be loved. So I'm going to, uh, uh I, I am going to cut myself off from that because, it feels like, to me, it's too big of a risk to um, uh, to connect in that way. And sure. Yeah. And, you know, I remember you know, watching TV or watching movies, particularly some of the, you know, the always around the holidays, they bring out the tearjerkers, you know, the mm -hmm. one guy who's alone and feels miserable. And then some family loves him and takes him in and it's a happy ending. Right. And that was not the story of my life. Right. I would watch these things and I would feel so emotional wanting that connection, mm -hmm. but knowing deep down inside that that's not the, the cards that life dealt me and that I would never get and feel that. I felt the same way. I felt like I was effective. I felt like I didn't have the ability to be able to do that. I felt like 
life had jilted me in a way and that I was sort of constructed in a way that didn't have the ability to uh, connect with other people and to uh, uh, experience love in a way that didn't terrify the hell out of me and didn't make me retreat into the innermost depths of myself sure. and then want to numb it with whatever I had available later on. That was definitely alcohol earlier on. It was both drugs and alcohol. Um, you know, and so my experience of my mom dying when I was 11 and saying, nope, none of that, it, it, I, it mirrors sort of your experience in terms of um, not wanting to be able to connect or not feeling like you can connect. But I found that that was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in many ways. Um, now that, you know, I'm in active recovery, you, you mentioned that you're in this forest and there's no way out and you feel like there's no way out. Well, as the podcast indicates, the name of the podcast, there is indeed a way out. Absolutely there is. But, you know, when you're walking that path and you're all alone, there seems to be no way out. And, you know, it kind of reminds me of the story when I was a kid, you know, I used to hear the story about Hansel and Gretel and they, you know, they were dropping breadcrumbs through the forest. And it's very difficult when there's no breadcrumbs to follow out. You know, it gets to a point where there, there's nothing to follow out and all you're doing is just walking around lost. Of course, there is a way out. The problem is, is that I was looking in the wrong direction. It wasn't this idea that I had to keep moving forward. It wasn't something that was physical that I could look around. Really, all I had to do was stop and look inward and upward. And then eventually, you know, because when, you, when you're walking in the woods, it's very dark. But if you stop for just a moment and look up towards the sky, even in the densest of trees, you will see light. And that is the idea that really kind of took me into a different realm where things began the moment that I looked up and found that connection again. We'll take a short pause from our interview with Christopher to explore one of the keys, indeed, arguably one of the most important elements within the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, as laid out on page 62 in the big book. Selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we have made decisions based on self, which later placed us in a position to be hurt. The Merriam-Webster dictionary defines the term self-centered to be one of independent of outside force or influence or to be concerned solely with one's own desires needs or interests selfishness according to miriam webster is to be concerned excessively or exclusively with oneself seeking or concentrating on one's own advantage pleasure or well-being without regard for others i cared intensely about how i felt indeed my feelings dominated my entire existence for the better part of my childhood adolescence and adulthood prior to finding recovery in alcoholics anonymous 
My self-centered nature drove me to drink alcoholically and engage in a variety of addictive behaviors throughout my active drinking and using days. In the end, no source of external pleasure provided me lasting relief from the torment of my emotions. It was only in working the 12 steps as laid out in the big book, particularly four through seven, that brought the relief my soul had been longing for as long as I can recall. It was through active acts of selflessness that I experienced relief. It was only through an honest appraisal of myself that I shared with God and another human being did I begin to experience a new freedom as promised through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. This universal truth, one of the program's many paradoxes, is poetically captured by the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Now back to the second half of our interview with Christopher. I lost everything that I had. And I'm sleeping in weekly rental motels, but I'm getting kicked out because I can't just seem to get the bill paid. You know, every Friday they wanted to be paid, and I knew that. And I got paid on Fridays, but I couldn't get up there to get them paid. You know, I wanted to, I, I had to sit in my, you know, in that misery in the room, commiserating with myself about how my life had come to this, this point. And the phone would ring, and I knew it was them asking for the money, and I, I, I couldn't even answer the phone. But I had to go out for the weekend and drink. Not that I wanted to, I had to. I had to get rid of that, that fog in my head that just kind of crept over every part of my being right. to get rid of that feeling. I was sitting there in this park and it used to be um, an orchard and there was a, a mill with a, you know the water wheel paddle and it's running in this creek. And I went in there and I sat and I was sitting, I found this little tree and it looked like a bow, you know, kind of like a swing. And I sat on this branch and I remember it being in the park and looking out and the sun was just beginning to kind of drop into the sky in the afternoon. And um, I could see it reflecting off the water and I was sitting there. And for the first time in earnestness, I began to pray. I have no idea what I said other than this. God, I can't do this anymore. Please help me. And it, and it started to illuminate sure. your life. And I love that analogy because for so long I was just trying to push forward, try harder, try harder, try to will my disease into into submission. And the problem is it's a rigged fight, right? The, 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 the fight is fixed. I can't win, right? Yeah. Um, but I was trying to fight it. And I was looking within myself to try to fix me. Or I was looking backward to try to figure out what happened to me, right? Absolutely. None of those things fixed me. None of those things got me well, but what got me well was looking out and up, right? Right. Amazing. So, as I mentioned, you know, I, I had this experience, and I, when I was living in New York, 
my business partner had physically thrown me out of the office. They uh, asked me to never come back again. And I lost everything that I had. And I'm sleeping in weekly rental motels, but I'm getting kicked out because I can't just seem to get the bill paid. You know, every Friday they wanted to be paid, and I knew that. And I got paid on Fridays. But I couldn't get up there to get them paid. You know, I wanted to, I, I had to sit in my, you know, in that misery, in the room, commiserating with myself about how my life had come to this this point. And the phone would ring, and I knew it was them asking for the money, and I, I, I couldn't even answer the phone. But I had to go out for the weekend and drink. Not that I wanted to, I had to. I had to get rid of that, that fog in my head that just kind of crept over every part of my being right. to get rid of that feeling. So I would go out and I would drink, and... Uh, what I had to do was I was making very little money. It cost me like $200 a week to stay in this ho- in this little motel, right? And I was probably making maybe $250 a week. Well, it certainly doesn't leave you much for anything else. No. I, um, we were doing warehousing for grocery stores for overages and damages. So what I would do is I would go out when nobody was looking. I'd go out to the warehouse and I would steal Snickers bars and high C so I had something to eat during the week sure. so that I could go out and drink on the weekends. And that's certainly a recipe for, uh, you know, health is, uh, uh, you know, Snickers bars and uh, high it, it, it does. It lends <laughs> to a really nice color of yellow to your skin. <laughs> super balanced diet there. <laughs> um, eventually, I, I got kicked out of another hotel and uh, I wound up in this park and uh, was sitting there in this park. And it used to be um, an orchard. And there was a, a mill with, a, you know, the water wheel paddle and running in this creek. And I went in there and I sat and I was sitting. I found this little tree and it looked like a bow, you know, kind of like a swing. And I mm-hmm. sat on this branch. And I remember being in the park and looking out. And the sun was just beginning to kind of drop into the sky in the afternoon. And um, I could see it reflecting off the water. And I was sitting there. And for the first time in earnestness, I began to pray. I have no idea what I said other than this. God, I can't do this anymore. Please help me. I know when I left there, the sun was pretty well set. So I had been there probably several hours. Seemed to pass in an instant, however. When I left that park, uh, I was able to never touch cocaine again. Uh, Alcohol would come shortly thereafter. But, you know, so I'm, I have that experience and I'm moving around. I, I'm a great storyteller, love telling stories. And if people are like me, you're good at it. Yes. And I could very easily, with the stories of my life, get people hooked. Boy, that's horrible. No wonder your life is the way that it is and want to take care of you. Right, right. Here, have this. Here, I'll do. Right. Sure. So, you know, I, I used it and I, I was couch surfing. And staying on some couches. Which sounds funner than it is, by the way. Sure. And funner is not a word, but it's... We'll, sound- we'll, we'll go with it. It's, right. it's, it's, absolutely, it's absolutely funner. Um, so I'm sleeping, on, I'm sleeping on these couches, and this woman, uh, I decided I needed to go to therapy one more time because I needed to talk about my problems because obviously I was so defective and, and messed up that right. I had to go back, right? right? So I go back, and... As she's giving me a ride, she didn't know, I knew her husband, but I really didn't know her. And she's giving me this ride and she's talking to me. And she told me that she thought I was a wonderful young man. I was bright. I was articulate. I was really funny. I had all of these talents. 
And she said, but I think it's very sad. I think one of these days you're going to kill yourself. And that'll be a big loss. And she began to cry. And I thought, why would you do that? If you, you know, like I mentioned before, if you knew who I was, this facade you see is not me. Mm -hmm. Has nothing to do with this. If you knew who I was and what I was, you wouldn't like me either. Right. And that stuck with me. Shortly thereafter, um, my dad had gone into treatment out in California as some consequences from where he worked, trying to avoid some consequences. And he came out and I was sleeping at another man's house. His name is Rick. And um, Rick had played football for Syracuse and Buffalo University. So he is probably about 6'2", 6'3", just absolutely wide-shouldered, barreled, beer-barrel-chested man. And since we're on podcast, people can't see me, but I, I'm 5'10". Uh, I weigh now about 160 pounds, but back then, same height, I probably was 125 pounds. Sure. So you had to run around in the shower to get wet. Ab absolutely. I did. You know, there uh, people would talk about skinny dipping. Anytime <laughs> I went in the water, it was skinny, <laughs> skinny dipping. So, um, so Rick had, you know, had looked at me and he said, there's nothing left for you here. I think you should go back to California. And there was something the way that he looked at me. Now, see, I'm dumb, but I'm not stupid. Mm -hmm. I have great self-preservation. The way he said it, I knew there would be no arguing this point, And I said, okay. And he asked me when I wanted to go. Now, that day was St. Patrick's Day of 1990. So that was March 17th of 1990. And I said, well... Why don't I go out tonight? Because obviously on St. Patrick's Day, that's what you want to do, right? Right. You want to go out and drink and yes. party and be with yes. your friends. So I said, well, let me go out tonight. I, I can get together with some friends, say some goodbyes, go out to the bar, and we can leave tomorrow. And he paused and he looked at me and said, I think you'll go now. There was something in that now as he was standing over me that said, there will be no arguing. And I just kind of dumbly said, okay. <laughs> yeah. And we walked into the back uh, of his condo, and uh, he gave me a green army duffel bag. He used to keep his hockey equipment in it. And he gave me this bag, and I took my bag, which had my hockey equipment in it, and I dumped it out. And we packed what we could in these two duffel bags, and he took me down to the Greyhound bus station, and he put me on a bus, and he gave me $100. And he said, you'll be on this bus for four days. Make sure you eat something, and don't spend all the money in one place. And uh, as I shared with you yesterday, you know, it, it's about four hours from Buffalo down to Cleveland. And we got down to Cleveland. And I'm looking around and in my head, I'm sitting in the in the bus terminal. And I kid you not, I'm thinking, what are the stories I'm going to tell people to describe to them why I'm on this bus going across country and not on a plane like I'm used to? Sure. And the idea had come into my head, which, I mean, was partially true that I'm living in New York, I'm walking this life of to become a millionaire, I own my own business, and eventually some, a series of, of bad things happen, and my life falls apart, and therefore I'm on the bus with lowly people like you. This is really the thoughts that are going mm -hmm. through my head. Sure. And I began to look around, and, and I, you know, if you're anything like, like me or that, you, you know, you look around for that guy. And there's something about their disposition and the way they move and the way they sit that you can pick them out in any crowd. And I picked this guy out and I start talking to him. Well, what do you want? I did this, this. And he told me that, as I shared with you yesterday, he told me he had some really good acid. And uh, imagine an addict and an alcoholic uh, being able to uh, immediately identify uh, uh, a fellow 
uh, <laughs> drug <laughs> dealer <laughs> and be able to seek out the drugs. I'm shocked. It's like sitting in a room full of brunettes and a blonde walks in. I mean, right. they're that, exactly. they're that exactly. easy. to when, right. when you're in that when place, you've got the radar. Right. Yeah, right. You know, so, so I, I bought two posted stamps of acid from him, and he told me that it was pretty strong and to take a quarter to half of one. I'm great at following directions. I promptly swallowed both tablets immediately. <laughs> and it was just a very, very interesting four-day trip out to California. But what something happened on the way, which seems kind of odd, but it, I, we got to Kansas City. And when I got into Kansas City, I came walking into the bus terminal. And over on the other side, off to my right in the terminal, was sitting this cowboy. And I mean a real cowboy. He had on the hat and the long duster and the boots and the dirty jeans. And there was a saddle sitting on the floor next to him. And so I came, I, I came in and I sat down. And he got up and he walked across the terminal. And as he walked across the terminal and walked in front of me, Jesus Christ popped out of his chest with his arms wide open like he was going to hug me. And I thought, boy, that was kind of strange. That is a little weird. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it doesn't happen every day. No, but there was something in that moment that told me it was not the drugs that had done that. It truly was a spiritual experience. And another two and a half days, I wind up in California. And I didn't have the courage and conviction to call my dad. I remember when I was a little kid and my dad would yell at me, he'd go, come here! And I knew I was going to get beat. And even though it might have only been 10 feet to walk from, you know, where I happened to be to where my dad was, it felt like a mile. Yep. You know, and when I got to my dad's house, I'd called his secretary to come and pick me up because I didn't have the courage and conviction to call him. Lovely woman. She came and picked me up and drove me up to my dad's house. And when I got there, the driveways in California are all pretty small. Mm-hmm. And standing at the bottom of that driveway, looking up at, at the house, I mean, the driveway is probably only maybe 25 feet long, so a very small driveway. Sure. I remembered being a kid, and that's what it felt like. It felt like that mile as I'm looking up to this house. And yeah. I walked up to the door. And just I, dreading. Yeah, just, just dreading. But I, I, I had this hope. See, I grew, I grew up Catholic. And every year, right around Easter, the Catholic Church, part of the, the thing that they would tell you is they would, they would share the story of the prodigal son. Sure. Yep. And for those who aren't familiar with it, it's about a young man who grows up in, in a well-to-do family and decides he doesn't want to live there. He wants to live his own life. So he asks his dad for his inheritance, and he goes off, and he parties his life away. Right. And when he's absolutely destitute, sleeping in barnyards with pigs to keep warm, He's thinking about his father's house, and he decides to go back. And when he goes back, his father is so happy to see him that he throws a big party and gives him all kinds of new clothes and feeds him. So in the back of my mind, knowing we grew up Catholic, well, obviously my dad's going to be welcoming home and treat me like that. So I have this hope in the back. And when I got there, he invited me in and sat me down. And that was not the experience I had. <laughs> Again, expectations, exactly. right? You're, you're the child in the box and expecting mom to swoop you up and hug and kiss you. And your expectations were here and reality was here. And, and we have a similar experience here. Yeah. And my dad looked at me and he sat me down and he said, you know, I know you think that I'm dumb, but I'm not. And of course, you know, being 23 at the time, of course, anybody older than you is dumb. They don't know right. as much as you do. They don't do. know anything, right? They've been ruined by the world. So, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there at, at, at the kitchen table with him, and he said, you are my son. 
and I love you. But I do not like you or anything about you. I am not willing to help you in any way except for this. I will drive you to the bottom of the hill. I will give you enough money to take the city bus to the Santa Ana Mission. You are an effing bum. Go live with them. Get out. Wow. Yeah, that wasn't quite the homecoming I was no. expecting. No, dude. And um, my sister, who's a year younger than me, showed up at that time, and she said I could come and stay with her. And she was a uh, head waitress at uh, at this bar, and her fiancé was the head bartender. So I went and stayed at their house, and for the next 10 days, I would go to this bar, and I would drink for free. Mm-hmm commiserating how all of this stuff had happened to a wonderful, nice guy like me. And if the world would just give me a chance, right. You know, and, um, I made a decision thinking about the things that my dad had said that I'd be willing to bet if I changed my life enough that my dad would see my life has changed and he would then help me out. So he'd give me enough money so I could go back to New York, get my car out of hock, try and get my business back, get into a place to live and pick my life back up. I could make it work this time. This time it's going to be different, mm-hmm. right? So I decide that I'm going to be sober, at least for a while. And I figured on three months to six months on sheer will and hatred, I, I could get through this. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, just sheer bitter, if you could just run on anger for a while. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, it, it works for a while. It yeah. really does. Yeah. So I made the decision. I was sitting in the bar, and I, I, I made that decision. And I looked up at the clock. And I thought, this will be my last drink for a while. It was 11.45 on March 31st of 1990. And I walked up. I ordered a double V on 7 because that was what I liked. I slammed it down very quickly, and I walked out of the bar. No intentions to stay sober. The next day was April 1st, April Fool's Day. So that is my sobriety date, April 1st, <laughs> 1990. And I thought, this is going to be the greatest April Fool's joke I've ever played. Right. right? Right. And uh, so I set out to, to, to get sober. Now, I'm a planner. I don't do things kind of halfway when I commit to them. So I decided, well, maybe just staying sober and telling him I'm doing these things won't be enough. So maybe I better go to Alcoholics Anonymous, mm-hmm. you know, just in case he asks me questions, I can I can answer them. Right. Because that's kind of that guy my dad is. He, he researches and he knows things. and. Of course, having just gotten out of treatment, he had an exposure to it. So mm-hmm. I wanted to be able to talk the lingo with him right. so that he could see, you know, that, hey, I'm really doing this deal. And uh, I walked in with absolutely no intentions of staying sober, none. I'm 23 when I walk in the doors and I'm sitting in there and everybody from the 20 perspective of a 23 year old looks really old and they do you know, they absolutely do they're 30 and 40 and 50 now that's not old i mean i i just turned 50 here a few months ago so trust me that's not old and you don't look a day over 49 i, I have to tell thank, you thank you I, I appreciate that mm-hmm. i pickled myself well evidently <laughs> um so as i'm sitting there you know they look old i can't relate to them they're talking about losing their wife or their spouse or their children and these multiple jobs and homes and i i didn't have that right i couldn't relate i spilled more beer than you drank right and i thought well you miserable old jerk if, <laughs> you know if you didn't shake so badly you might have got here a little earlier just like i did so cut me a break and um but so I'm sitting there and, and I can't relate. And, and as I had, had related to you, I, I had this experience. Somebody looked at me and they said, you know, listen to the similarities, not the differences, mm-hmm. kid. And when I heard that, I knew that I was home. There was something in the way that they talked in these rooms that wasn't like anything else anyone had ever told me. 
you know, all my counselors and friends and therapists and clergy and priests and ministers and just all these litany of people would talk to me. And as I'm talking about my life, they would, you know, pat me on the head, you poor thing. And they'd say, I know how you feel. And I knew internally they didn't. Right. Amazing. You say that like, oh, I know how you feel. And I always felt like you have no idea. You literally have no idea. How dare you? Right. And but when I sat in these rooms and they looked at me and they said, you know, when you're sitting there by yourself in the dark with those thoughts coming into your head and it feels like there's that empty hole in the middle of your gut Mm -hmm. and there's this bitter cold January wind blowing through it that nothing can fill. I've been there and I've walked a mile in your shoes. I understand how you feel. Boom. I knew instantly that they were telling me the truth. For the right. first time in my life, somebody was being honest with right. me. Right. And I made a decision somewhere along the line that I was not going to leave these rooms no matter what. It didn't matter how much I had to white knuckle it, how hateful and bitter I had to become to get past this thing. I wanted what they wanted, had, and I was not going to leave Period. The power in that truth, the power in that honesty that that I also received in these rooms, and I had been in the rooms a few times before, and was doing what um, you alluded to, which was, "I'm better than you. I'm not as good as you. I'm better than you. I'm not as good as you. I'm different than you. Different than you. Better than you. Not as good as you." And um, I and never was able to people connect. wonder why so many of us alcoholics and addicts are diagnosed as bipolar. I mean, how could I not be? I'm better than you. I'm worse than you. I'm better than you. I'm worse than you. I love you. I hate you. I love you. I hate you. I mean, talk about two polar opposites. Yes. Well, it's black or white, black or white, sure. all in or not at all, right? right? And that's exactly. the, the extremes, right? Exactly. And that I, we live in. And I did. I sat there. And in one moment as somebody sharing, I'm judging them and thinking, you are the dumbest individual I've ever seen in my life. I can't believe you even have the ability to breathe on your own. How did you get dressed in the morning? Right. Exactly. I am obviously so far (laughs) superior to you intellectually, emotionally, in every way in life. (laughs) And better looking. And better looking. Yeah. Thank you for noticing, by the way. And um, (laughs) in the very next moment, as they're talking about something, I was thinking, no, you don't understand how bad I am. Right. You have no idea the depths of me and how much degradation and pain that I've caused my entire life. I, I can't live with myself. Only an, an addict and an alcoholic could probably truly understand how you can feel superior and less than somebody at the same exact it, time. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and I loved, I loved when I heard very early on that description of an alcoholic being somebody who, ha, you know, you know, who thinks that they're absolutely superior but has an inferiority complex right. at the same time? Yeah. That was me. I thought, how did you know me? And I was like, what? Yeah, it's like, you know, I'm an absolute egomaniac with an inferiority bingo. complex. That was me to a T. And I was like, yes, that's me. Ding, ding, ding. We have a winner. That's Thank right. you. Yes. And um, so I, I sat in the rooms, you know, and I came in with, as I mentioned, I, you know, I grew up in an alcoholic home and there was a lot of physical abuse. So I came in with a lot of baggage into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I looked around the rooms and people were happy and I sat down and I I, I read the book, you know, the first 164 pages plus the doctor's opinion and the introductions. And before I was 90 days sober, I had to memorize it. I literally could tell you what page this was on, what page that was on. They used to call people like that 90-day miracles. So based on knowing that uh, by heart and having committed to memory, that 
uh, clearly um, uh, uh, converted in your life into a, a totally happy, joyous, and free life, right? Because that's... Oh, absolutely. No, I'm kidding. I didn't. <laughs> I had all of this knowledge in my head, but I had no practical experience with it. I knew that it couldn't work for somebody un- as unique and special and intelligent as I was. So I memorized it so that I could be like you. I could be the AA ninja. Right. You know, the guy sitting in there that knew everything, was well-spoken. People would thought, God, he's really got his stuff together. And they'd pat you on the back on the way out, and they'd be like, man, that was a powerful share. They did, and they'd they'd come up to me afterwards, and they'd say, boy, you know, what you shared, that was so good. And I'd think inside, I'd be beaming, yeah, I know it was. But I was making it up. You know, I was literally making it up based off the things I would hear people say. Right. I would parrot it back in some different way. And I literally, I remember sitting in a meeting one time, and I had something so important I had to say, because if it was important to me, I knew it had to be important to you. Clearly. Clearly. You know, I, I'm, I, I have such intellectual prowess. <laughs> I sat there and I said, this old timer told me that this is the crux of the program. And then I spewed something out. Now, I absolutely made that up. There was an old timer that I had talked to. <laughs> Nobody had told me this was the crux of the program, but this is what I believed. And in order to look credible, I would put it on somebody else so that if it looked horrible, I could give the credit to the person that I made up. Right. And if it looked good, then, then you know. Then you, I, I, by default, by association, exactly. you looked amazing. Exactly. And um, so I, I'm having, the, I'm going through this stuff and I'm having these experiences and I'm miserable. I'm absolutely just miserable. And uh, I'm sitting in the room of Alcoholics Anonymous. Wait, you're, wait, you're waxing poetically about steps and about principles and you've got the big book memorized and you're miserable? Absolutely. See, huh. I, I, I was doing things from theory and practicum rather than from experience. Mm, so you're saying that you actually have to do things. You do actually have to do things. And take action. Uh, yes. It, it's, it's actually written that way in the book in many, many places. And I, along with many people, seem to miss that. <laughs> I missed it as well for a long time. <laughs> the problem was I would sit in meetings and I would listen to people. And here I am new in sobriety. And so I would listen to people with one year, two years, five years, ten years, and I thought, they must know something that I don't. Right. Even though what they would say didn't line up with the book, so I wanted to twist what they mm-hmm. said to, well, that must actually be what the program says. So I wouldn't do what the program says. Right. Obviously, right. then not doing what the program says, I didn't get the results that it promised, and I was miserable. Right. And uh, sitting in there, you know, one of the things I heard over and over was this idea about you know, the third and the fourth step being really key to this whole thing. In fact, the book says, you know, in the third step, you know, that this was the keystone. Right. Which is the most important stone in an arch is the keystone. It's the one on top. It holds the whole thing together. (laughs) The whole thing together. So I heard that this was the keystone to the new and triumphant arch through which we would pass to freedom. And I thought I must be missing it because... They're saying something different that didn't line up with the book. So I, I must have really ruined my brain out there because I, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So rather than do what they did, the first hundred that sat down and wrote the book, I did what the fellowship was telling me. Right. And right. often, and that's one of the things I, I tell people that are new, please learn to distinguish between program and, and fellowship. between fellowship. Yep. Because you will often hear a lot of well-meaning people, and they are. They're and they well-meaning. Are. I agree. Who say things that are absolutely contradictory to what the book says. Correct. And will give you a bad basis to work this. Correct. So I'm going through this, and we're talking about the third and the fourth step. And 
one of the things I hear with the fourth step is how horrible it is and it's difficult and you got to write this sin list and this all the bad stuff you've done in your life. I don't want to do that. I feel right. absolutely miserable. There's right. no way I want to do that right. and somehow magically feel better. I can't see how that's going to happen. You know, and some of us too, like, um, felt like, wow, that'll be my opportunity to take the bat out again and beat myself up over all the, and how shitty of a person I am sure. and how horrible I am and well, how defective li- you know, I am. Right? Again, if you listen to the things that people tell you in meetings right. who are, you know, talking out of theory rather than experience, yep. um, it makes perfect sense that they, totally. would, that they would tell you these right. things. So, yeah, I, I'm having those experiences. And one of the things that they told me, and you'll hear this often, sadly, in the fellowship, is they said, I need to look for my part to get past my anger. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this is very important. So I kind of want to give a little background on some things going into that. You know, I mentioned I grew up in an alcoholic home and that there was a lot of abuse. Now, my dad is an alcoholic. And growing up as a little boy, he was about six years of age. And one summer day, he forgot to give the dog fresh water. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather, who's also a severe chronic alcoholic, the next day, to teach my dad a lesson, takes him outside. And he takes him into the garage, and he takes a swing set chain. And he bolts it to my dad's ankle, and he takes him out, and he chains him to this tree. Mm-hmm. And then he tells my my grandmother and my dad that he needs to stay out there for the next three days without food or water so he knows how a dog would feel and that he would never do this again. Now, while my dad's sitting out there chained to this tree in the hot summer trying to shade himself, and all little towns have alleyways, and the kids would come down the alley and they'd call to him, you know, come and play with us, and he couldn't go anywhere. He's chained to the tree. Wow. So kids are mean, and sometimes they don't understand the consequences of some of the things they do Mm -hmm. and they're sitting in the alleyway and they they figure out that my dad is chained to the street and he can't go anywhere so they start throwing rocks at my dad and my dad runs out to protect himself hits the end of that chain and falls on his face just like a dog right these are the types of experiences that my dad brings into his life right now i mentioned that we were living here in in saint paul and the neighborhood we were living in eventually was condemned as they were putting the highway through our neighborhood and my dad took a transfer out to southern New Jersey. As I had mentioned, now while we were living in New Jersey, about the first spring we were out there, my mom would go shopping every Saturday. She'd go grocery shopping. And my sister and I wanted to go outside and play. And my dad was sitting at the table paying bills. And we knew not to bother him while he was doing that. So we asked if we could go outside and play. And my dad said yes. And he said, just don't get wet. Well... I know how you do that when you grow up in a, in a place like Minnesota. You put on your snow pants and your jacket and your boots and your mittens and your gloves and you go outside and play and you stay dry. Right. The things that are supposed to get damp and wet get damp and wet, but you're dry, right? right. So I'm outside playing with my sister and we come in and we're un- getting undressed by the doorway, taking off our boots and our snow pants. And my dad looks up from the table. He says, I told you little bleepers, bleeper, yeah. what, n- not to get wet, didn't I? And he leaped up, and he picked me up, and he slapped me four or five times across the face, and he threw me down on the kitchen floor. And as my head banged off the floor and I peed my pants one more time, I'm thinking, what did I do? I'm dry. Why do you treat me like this? Mm -hmm. And I'm terrified. I have many, many instances like that in my life. And I walk into Alcoholics Anonymous, and I hear people say, I need to look for my part to get past my anger. What was my part? Right. 
So I'm looking for my part and I can't find one. Mm -hmm. I'm a a five-year-old little boy who understands he is not to get wet. I'm dry. So what's my part? Right. I can't find one. Right. So here's what I did. With a wink and a nod, I said, Dad, I'll be the bigger man and I'll forgive you. And I swept it under a rug. Mm -hmm. That is not forgiveness. That is pardoning. Right. Just like a legal pardon is saying you are guilty of the things we're accusing you of, but we're going to kind of look the other way. Right. Right. So that's what I do. And I stay angry. I find no forgiveness. So I'm angry constantly with him. You know, and if you're like me and you're angry at people, they know it. I'm negative towards him. I'm sarcastic. You're cold or distant or. Exactly. Punishing silence. Mm hmm. I don't call him for Father's Day. Right. I don't send birthdays. Yeah. Birthdays. I don't send cards. And um, and there's a burning resentment it, that's being fostered. And when you think about that person, you feel a resentment. That's a beautiful word. You know, we're talking. I have a little resentment. No, I had hate. Right. Unconditional hate yeah. for this man. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I, and um, so I still have all of this going on, and people are telling me constantly, I need to look for my part. I can't find one. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that? Now, I, I mentioned to you that I had an experience, and at around 19 uh, years sober, I lost everything that I had. Yeah. And the woman that I was supposed to marry, we had a one-year-old child together. We had this beautiful home over by the lake that I'd done a lot of work on. We'd always, we each just dreamed of this turn-of-the-century home with woodwork inside and fireplaces and and I had it. And she left. I came home one day and she was gone. She was gone. Our son was gone. Her two daughters that I had been like a stepfather to for several years, they were gone. Dishes, dog, it's all gone. I'm sitting in this empty house. And as I'm sitting in this empty house, I hear these people walk past outside, right? And they, had, I, they obviously had been past the house because the house had changed a lot from the time I moved in, from the people who had had it. A bunch of college guys had lived in it before I did. So it was kind of me- wasn't well taken care of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I repaint the place. I do the yard work and I hear them walk by and they're discussing how much the house has changed and who must live in this house. It was this little house on a corner on the hill. And they said that the people who live there must really have a great life have everything they ever wanted. And I'm sitting there as I hear that inside, and I'm thinking that that's a perfect reflection of my life. From the outside, it looks like I have everything I could ever want. But on the inside, just like that house I was sitting in, it was completely barren and empty. There was nothing there to give. Yeah. And I had had an incident happen where I'd stopped going to AA for several years, um, I had gotten really mad at God. I had been dating this woman, and I shared part of the story with you yesterday that, uh, you know, her ex-husband had come to kill me, and I don't mean he wanted to kick my butt in the parking lot. He, he literally plotted my murder. And he arrived at the house, and I, I had just left. But he found her. And he had taken her in, and he uh, took her into the back bedroom, and he chained and padlocked her to the bed, and he beat and tortured her for seven hours. And when the police showed up the next morning because she hadn't appeared at work... He couldn't deal with it, and he grabbed a, 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 a deer rifle, and he stood over the bed, and he put it to his chest, and he pulled the trigger and killed himself and collapsed on top of her. Now, she and I had talked about, you know, in the, these, these relationships that we have in Alcoholics Anonymous or uh, when you're out there in this goofiness and insanity, you know, we were talking about marriage and different things, and 
because of this, she pulled away and she felt she couldn't continue with the relationship mm-hmm. and the relationship ended. And at that point, that's when I had had enough of God. I was so fed up. Mm-hmm. You know, here I am. Uh, I, I grew up in an alcoholic home. It's full of abuse. I see all of these things I should never experience. At three years of age, you take my best friend. Uh, I'm an alcoholic myself. I, I, I'm constantly in conflict. Now, you, you know, the one person that, I, that I'm happiest in life with, that I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life with, that person has taken away also. God, I am done with you. Yep. If this is the kind of loving God that you are, I want nothing to do with you. And I felt the same way when my mom died and then repeatedly, I mean, I made that decision. I want nothing to do with a God that allows this to happen. Sure. You know, 11-year-old child and you take the most important person away from me in my life and our whole lives turned upside down upside down. I mean, it was just a complete, she was everything to us, everything. She did everything for us. Um, She was the family. And when you take that away, our whole lives were torn to pieces. And what kind of God would allow that to happen? And then going forward, every meaningful relationship I ever had in my life ended in loss. And, and so that sort of perpetuated sure. the belief that God was, um, um, that, that, that was, God was not something or someone that I wanted any part of. And that will do it for this week and part one of Christopher's interview. Stay tuned for next week when we have the second part of Christopher's interview. If you would like to reach out to the show, please email share at wayoutcast.com. That is share at wayoutcast.com. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out, where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.